Evil is an ontological parasite. What's a parasite, first of all? If something is a parasite, what is that? Yeah, something that feeds off of something else, okay? So, what that means is that when God made everything good, the logical um, corollary to that is if everything is good and freedom is given into the system, then what logically is a parasite that comes along whether you want it or not? The possibility of what? The possibility of evil, you see? So that's what, that's what Lewis talks about. In fact, he calls it a parasite. He calls evil this parasite. So uh, he does this to preserve human freedom. But have you ever been asked that question? Why did God, if he knew what man was going to do, why would God go ahead and create the world the way he did? Have you heard that question? Have you ever thought that question? It's a very good question. Um, and immediately we would say, I mean, did God have to create man? He didn't have to create man. He chose to create man. Did God know the result of all the choices that man would make? Yeah, did God go ahead and choose to set it all in motion? He did. He did. Um, so, let me ask you the, question, the third question. Is foreknowledge, God knowing these things, what's going to happen? Does foreknowledge contradict true freedom? It doesn't? Okay. How, how would it not? One of the criticisms is that it would. I don't believe it does either, but I'm asking you. Give me an example of where foreknowledge does not contradict true freedom. Can you all come up with something just off the cuff? Right. So me knowing what decision you're going to make has more bearing on which decision you make personally. Right. Okay. So give me an example. I mean, that's that's. Give me a specific example. What do you know? What do you know for certain that's going to happen? Just tell me something you know for certain is going to happen. Well, okay. Something that okay. Some. What's that? Okay, there you go. That's good. I know for certain that you're going to die. Now, does that mean because I know that in advance that therefore my knowing that in advance is what causes that? No. Does that in any way strip you of your freedom? No, not at all. Um, something with maybe a little less certainty but still pretty certain is all of us who've had kids, we know um, when, uh, when little Leonard is about to be born that a day is coming that we're going to buy him a bike, right? I mean, that's, that's a safe bet, right? Have you all bought a bike yet? Does he have a bike? Yeah, he's got a bike. Um, and usually, if you're a good parent, you'll start him off on training wheels, right? You know that in advance. I'm going to get my son or my daughter a bike with training wheels. And I also know that I'm going to eventually do what? Take them off. Yeah, when they're 14, 15, I'll finally take those, those things off, right? Now, you know you're going you're to take those things off, right? And you also know that when you finally show them how to ride without training wheels and you finally let them go and they've got to learn equilibrium, you also know what? That you know they're going to fall. You know that. Now, you knew that before you had a child, when the child was born, 
before you bought the bike. You bought the bike. You assembled the Well, you don't assemble bikes anymore, but you buy it fully assembled. You, uh, you don't, do you assemble bikes? I don't assemble. No way. You, uh, you took the training wheels off. You put your son or daughter on the bike. You let them go. Right? Now, all of that's true, isn't it? Did you cause them to fall? No. Were they free throughout that entire scenario? Did they want a bike? They wanted a bike. Did they want you to show them how to ride it? They wanted you. Did they want those training wheels off? They wanted them off. Did they want you to get your grubby hands off them? Let them go by themselves? They sure did. Right? So, foreknowledge in no way contradicts freedom. Now, that's one of the criticisms that Lewis is addressing here, is that people are saying, wait a minute, if God knew in advance what was going to happen in the world, how could man truly be free? But that's really not a problem because in even our limited understanding, we see that every day of things that we know are going to happen, and yet it doesn't in any way restrict freedom from other people. Isn't that true? So that's an important point here that he's trying to build his, his argument here. Now, if that's true, uh, let's move on here. Number four. What is Lewis's argument about, remember what he says, about the better stuff a creature is made of than the more good and evil it is capable of? What did Lewis mean by that? The better stuff a creature is made of than the more good and evil it is capable of. Nita, you have any idea what he means by that? Exactly, yeah. A guy from Harvard has the potential to do, potentially, theoretically, a lot more damage if he uses his maybe technical training, whereas a guy from A&M doesn't or something, right? <laughs> okay. That's great. Okay, yeah, Paul's a good example of um, the better stuff. What was the stuff that Paul was made of? It was his zealousness for God. Because he was inherently so zealous for God, he could potentially do so much harm to the church. But when he finally saw the light, that same stuff, better stuff that he was made of, could do so much good, right? That's a great example. Lewis uses the example of, remember animals? You know, that you look at certain animals and they can do, you know, little Bobo the dog and, you know, maybe TT on the carpet something bad and maybe the best thing he can do is fetch, bring the newspaper to you, right? Maybe bring your slippers to you. That's nice, you know, but that's all the stuff a dog is made of, you know, but now you take a four-year-old, now the four-year-old is made of so much better stuff, has the capacity for more good and the capacity, yeah, for more destruction, devastation, Right. And then a 10-year-old and a 20-year-old and on and on. So that's what Lewis is talking about. But what is it, though, that differentiates humankind from all of the animals? 
What is it? What's that? Okay, it's the conscience. And what is it that drives the conscience? Lewis has already talked about it. It's why he, God created the world. What is the, what is the mechanism that makes man different than everything else? Okay, again, knowledge of good and bad. It's his, what's that? There you go. The power. Okay, we're all saying the same thing. And all of that is born out of a free will that we have. The reason we have a free will is because we have the power for rational thought. We have the power for good and evil. Uh, we have the power of contrary choices. See? And that's the better stuff that we're made of. So, if that's the case, if man is made with the best stuff possible, then in Lewis's mind, that means man can do something really great, such as what? What's something really great that man has done? Anything. What's man done that's shown the greatness of man? Huh? We always go to medicine. Yeah. Medicine. Technology, that's right. A space shuttle. We've gone to the moon, right? We've built a Kobe satellite. We've mapped out the universe, right? What else has man done that shows man's greatness? There you go. Harness electricity through all kinds of forms, right? Through water and solar and all kinds of stuff that we've been able to create electricity, uh, harness it, architecture. What else? Nuclear power. Now, those are the great things of man. Now, that man does those things because of the good stuff that he's made of. But what's the flip side? What's the flip side that man can do? What have we done? Yeah, have we done that? Sure, we've done all kinds. Of, we could go through a whole list of the, the evils of humanity. So you see what Lewis is doing? He's trying to establish that there's something different between us and my golden retriever. And that is that I have this stuff that I'm made of that allows me to do really great things and really evil things. See? Um, and I'm really free to do it. And God does not cause me to do it. Just because God sets it in motion or, and knew it in advance, He doesn't cause these things directly. Do you remember at the end of the book of Job? Job goes through all of those sufferings, and it's a really interesting passage. In Job 42, Job's brothers and sisters come around him to console him. And do you remember what the Bible says, what, what the text says? They consoled Job for what? Do you remember what it said, anybody? I know, it's, a, it's like a needle in the haystack. They console him for all the evil that the Lord had done to him. Isn't that interesting? But the entire book, well, how, how is it described? Who's doing all the evil? Satan was doing all of the evil with God's permission. Yet at the end of the book, when it's all said and done, at the end of the book, you see that God takes full responsibility for it all. And they consoled him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon, upon Job. It's pretty interesting, this balance. So you have this freedom that exists. The freedom of Satan. The freedom of Job to raise his hand against God. The freedom of men. Yet God still was in sovereign control over it. So, moving on now, as he continues this, number five... 
Look what he says here. He says, what is the key to history according to Lewis? He continues to build his argument here. What is the key to history? You guys see where it is? Page fifteen fifty one. What is the key to history? Okay. That's, that's a fact of man. But the key to history was what? What's that? Say that again. Man. That's what drives history. Okay, so it's this, it's this futility of man seeking something, right? But then God does something about it in history, right? And this is the key to history. What did God do to resolve this dilemma for man? What's that? Okay, so he sends Christ, right? He goes ahead. So the key to history is the fact of Christ's coming. It's the fact that man is never satisfied. Nothing ultimately fulfills. And so then God sends Christ into the world. Um, look here what he says. Uh, page 50. See that? Y'all with me? Page 50, if you have your book. He says, that is the key to history. Terrific energy is expended, civilizations built up, institutions devised, but each time something goes wrong. Some fatal flaw always brings the selfish and cruel people to the top, and it all slides back into misery and ruin. Name me one thing that man has ever come up with that wasn't somehow used also for evil. Has there ever been anything? I mean, you can come any invention, any discovery that was made somehow has also been used for evil to some degree. So, what's that? Television? Um, has that? Are you saying that it has not or has been used for evil? Oh, absolutely, yeah certainly has been used for evil. Um, any technology has been used for great evil. Cell phones you know, have been used for evil. Everything has. And, and the point that Lewis is making is why is it that everything that's ever been made by man has somehow been also used for evil? Why is that? And this isn't just speculation on Lewis's part. This is just an observation of man and history. Why is it? The obvious answer to Lewis, what is it? Okay, one, Satan has a hand in it, but, but what else about man? Yeah, there's something about man that's gone, that's gone wrong, right? That's, that's one of the reasons that the Bible um, really stands alone as a unique text. As you look at the other religious texts of the world, and how do they describe man? Man's good. Man is born neutral. That there's no depravity and fallenness to man. Yet the Bible comes in and says, for we were born in sin and conceived in iniquity. Right? That there's something in man that's gone, gone south, that's gone wrong. And so, you know, when people sometimes ask me, hey, you know, why do you believe the Bible over any other religious book in the world? You know, there's all kinds of routes you can go. I mean, I can talk about, well, I believe the historical accuracy of it. I believe archaeologically it's been demonstrated true. I believe prophetically the Bible is true. I can go a number of routes. But what I do now, my first argument is always uh, an argument for man. That the Bible's description of man 
is the truest and most profound description of mankind. That man is made in the image of God and therefore he can do great things. Is that true? He can do great things. Um, And man also has been born into sin and man can do awful things. From things that are very apparent that make the front page news to things in your own kitchen. I mean, can you one minute say something incredibly gracious and virtuous and then within like five minutes say something that just, where did that come from? The same heart produces two statements towards the same person. I've heard that happens every once in a while. That's the heart of man. You see, and the Bible says the reason that can happen is because there's something about man that's broken and it needs to be fixed. And so here, Lewis mentions this fact that uh, if you look at history, you see the striving of man. And, the, and that's the key to history is that it's this constant perpetual striving but never achieving. And evil always results from these things. But what four things did God do about it? What's the first thing Lewis says that God did about it? Page 50. See what he says? Yeah. Number one, he left us a conscience. Right? And the conscience is literally, conscience is, means it's with knowledge. That's all conscience means. It's with knowledge. That when I do something, there's something in me that is a moral register. And so God has left that in us in order to sense what we're doing is right or wrong. Now, can the conscience be numbed? Can a conscience be hardened? You bet it can. So is that sufficient? No, it's not sufficient, but God has given it to us. All of us are born into this world with an an interior awareness. All of us. And what happens is, depending on the kind of path that we all take, depending on our backgrounds, what happens is that that inner conscience begins getting different kinds of layers on top of it. And now your conscience begins to see either in a distorted way or it begins just to kind of get a callus over it. See? Or, if you grew up in a very healthy kind of a background, then your conscience tends to register in a, in a more normal way, still fallen, but not, not necessarily as distorted. So he says, number one, God gave us this conscience. What else did God give us? There's another thing he gave us. What does he say? Yeah, and what is that about? Yeah. Right. And they all have this sense of death and dying and what? And rebirth, right? The whole idea of rebirth is very common among the religions and the cultures of the world. Um, I mean, what are the? Think about this for a second. What are the movies that we love today that have this theme of somebody being cast out, and then there's a rebirth in some sense, and they come back and they're victorious, and we love it. Rocky, absolutely, Rocky. We don't need to go any further than that. That's that's it. Um, you know. For some of us who've seen Gladiator, I mean, that was, you know, remember Gladiator? Maximus gets thrown into prison with all the slaves, comes back, and it's everyone's favorite scene in the movie. Remember? You know the scene where he takes his helmet off 
and he says who he is. Remember that? It's great. You want to replay it over and over. That's a bad. That's a, that's the one bad thing about DVDs, is you can't play a line over. At least with a VHS recorder, you can rewind it and go over it over again. You got to go back to the darn scene from the very beginning on a DVD. I think, right? Um, yeah, but we. What's that? Dick. Yeah. Yeah, they're all the same. This idea that anytime somebody monopolizes on this theme of one who was cast out, sent away, and then comes back, we love that theme for some reason. And what Lewis would say from his study of literature is that because that theme is so deeply embedded in the heart of man that we long for the story to be true. And the reason we long for the story to be true is because the story has been embedded in the heart of man. Because the story is true. And there was one who came and got rejected and killed and died. And someday will come back, see, and he will take his followers with him. Isn't that great? And so that's Lewis's whole take on mythology and religion is that let's not just suddenly dismiss all of these things as, oh, that's just all myth. Oh, that's just all, you know, false religion. No, Lewis says all of these things have an element of the story, what he calls good dreams that exist. And all of us long for it, right? It's the, it's the longing of every one of us that someday, you know, we would meet that person who would come and, uh, and redeem us and restore us. And, you know, we have all of these, you know, faulty, disillusioned notions of this thing actually happening in life. But it's because we have this grander story that we long for, right? So that's the second thing. What's the third thing? What's that? Yeah, he selected the Jewish people. That's right. That God now is a God who does what? He's a God that's outside of space and time. And what does he choose to do? He breaks in, right? He breaks in and he selects a group of people. In fact, of all the people in the world he could have called, who was the first that he called to start the Jewish nation? Abraham, right? He calls a pagan out of Ur of the Chaldees. And he says, you are going to birth a nation. See? And so that's how God intervenes into this. And he does a fourth thing. What is the fourth one? Yes, yeah, see, top of page 51, then comes the real shock. Among these Jews, there suddenly turns up a man who goes about talking as if he was God. And he claims to forgive sins. See? So God gives us a conscience. He gives man good dreams, meaning these universal stories of deliverance and redemption. Uh, he calls out a people that he's going to spend centuries and centuries um, shaping and reshaping and refining and someday as Paul says in Galatians when the fullness of the times had come he would then send his son out of these people so Lewis makes it clear hey God has done a lot to reconcile this this uh, the, the history the patterns of history now verse number 6 verse According to Lewis, what did Jesus do that implied that he either was God or he was crazy? 
Yeah. He said that he could forgive sins. You remember Lewis's argument about that? What's so crazy about that? What was it about that that so made it evident that Jesus was claiming to be God? Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Or for you to look at me and you know I've offended Troy and you go, hey, I forgive you for that. You know. And so the implicit reference is that the sin really was against Jesus. Right. Do you remember? A place where Jesus forgave sins? Where was it? Uh, okay, one, you did see that there was this implicit forgiveness of her sins at the well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that was the woman caught in adultery. Go and sin no more. Yep. Where else where Jesus actually says, your sins are forgiven? Do you remember the first place? That's... Well, that was later. Mm-hmm, the first one. Uh, no, that was that. That was right after that. What's that? Um, you know what? He did forgive the leper sins. You're right, but that was after. That wasn't the first time. That's good. No. No. It was the one. I guess I'll just tell you. Yeah. Okay, I'll just say one word. And when I say it, you guys all go, Oh, yeah! Okay, when I say the word, pallet. Does that help you? Ah, there you go, right. Remember the guy that was lying on the pallet and he wanted to be healed and they drop him through the roof, his buddies do? And they they put him right there at Jesus' feet, right? And, and, uh, And Jesus says... Your sins are forgiven. It's the first time he says that. And remember the Pharisees and the the scribes were there? And they were outraged. Remember their question? Who are you? Uh, He They say, uh, who is this man that forgives sins? For only God alone can forgive sins. Remember that? And remember Jesus gives them a test? Gives them a question. He says, which is more difficult to do? To say, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise and walk? Which is more difficult to do? Well, for Jesus. Which one is testable? Rise and walk. So which is easier? To say, your sins are forgiven, right? Because I can say that. Hey, bro, Troy, your sins are forgiven. I mean, alright, great, thanks. <laughs> right? Big deal. But, if, you know, Troy comes in all lame on crutches. You know, and I say, drop those crutches, brother, and sprint. You know, and he does, right? Then that shows something that I've got power over something that is visible, right? So if the idea is if Jesus can do the harder of the two things, then what does that mean about the easier of the two? Piece of cake. So, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise and walk? Well, your sins are forgiven. It's easier. Okay, hey, rise and walk. He doesn't rise and walk. He rises, clicks his heels, and runs. Right? And of course, implicit in that is, now his sins have also been forgiven. You see? And that's what Lewis talks about. is This guy claims to forgive sins, 
And not just those who sinned against Him, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, but He claims to forgive other people for hurting each other. And, they didn't, and He didn't even go to the other person to say, hey, by the way, I'm going to forgive them for that sin before. I just wanted you to know before I do that. See? He forgives sins without even going to anybody because He doesn't have to. Because He was the one that was sinned against. That's what Lewis is talking about here. That was what implied that Jesus was either God or He was an absolute egomaniacal nut. Right? Or just, or just a, loony, a loony bird. One or the other. That being the case, by the way, that's, that is a very good thing to, um, when you guys talk to people, um, that, that's a very good argument that I use a lot of times. Is uh, A lot of times when people will say, you know, I don't think Jesus ever claimed to be God. Um, the fact that He claimed to forgive sins in a Jewish context definitely was a strong, implicit reference to Him being God. So, that's a very good, good argument to use. Number seven, why does Lewis say that Jesus never gave man the privilege of calling him just a great moral teacher? I mean, you go to the average person and they, you go, hey, who do you think was Jesus? Oh, man, he was a great teacher. He was a good man. He's at the top of my list. Right? The top of my list. Nice. Um, Jesus doesn't give man the privilege of being called. Uh, people calling him a great moral teacher. Why is that? Okay, number one, he claimed these things that how can you be a good moral teacher if the claims that you make are lies? They're wrong, right? Um, give me one where he claims to be God. Not Theos, for those of you who went to Brian's talk. Yeah, I and the Father are one. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. Right? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Okay, certainly claims exclusivity there, yep. Anything else? Remember the first place Jesus does it? Here's your other trivia question. First place he does it? What's that? That's okay. Remember, it was in Luke 4 when Jesus goes to the temple and he opens up the book of Isaiah. Remember that? And he's reading out of Isaiah and it's God talking. And it's about God uh, restoring the sight, healing the sick, healing the lame. Remember? Um, what's that? Right. Right. And he stops. And what does he say? Today, these things have been fulfilled in your midst. And they were just outraged as he would say something like that. Because he was taking the words of Yahweh, right, from Isaiah, and he was saying, in your midst, these things have been fulfilled. Isn't that incredible? So, all throughout the Scriptures you see, the New Testament, you see Jesus making these claims to being God. So, number one, he's not a good moral teacher because if he was lying, then that would certainly take the legs out from that. Why else doesn't he give them the privilege of making him just a good moral teacher? Right. In other words, right. 
Yeah. So if, if he wasn't God, that doesn't necessarily mean that he was a liar. He could have simply been what? Could have been a nut, right? Or he could have just been, I mean, wrong. Could have just been wrong. But no matter what, he's not a good moral teacher. And that's the point, is that we can't get away with just allowing people to feel like, oh yeah, Jesus, he's a great moral teacher. And that's what Lewis's point, is that he is either infinitely God or he's infinitely insane, one or the other. Now, he goes here in, uh, in chapter 4. Look what he says here. We've got four questions here that I want to walk through. What does Lewis say is the fundamental or central Christian teaching? What is the central Christian teaching? Yes, that's right. So it's, it's, it has to do with his death and about his coming to life again. And that giving us a fresh start is what he says, right? That's the fundamental Christian teaching. However, I don't know about you guys, but I remember growing up in church and uh, I just never got that. I don't know how I didn't get that, but I just, I just never got that. I don't know if it was, wasn't taught. But my impression of the central Christian teaching was simply to love. That's what I always heard. You know, the greatest commandment is to love. Love, love your neighbor, love your enemy. And what Lewis is saying is that love is not the central Christian teaching. That's an outflow of what the central teaching is, but it's the fact of his death and of his coming back to life. Um, you know, George Barna did a poll among evangelical Christians and asked them the question, um, did Jesus have to die to fulfill his mission? And it was shocking. Something like over 30% of evangelical Christians said no. He didn't have to die to fulfill his mission. But y'all tell me, you're a sharp, astute bunch. You're certainly not one of those 30%. Why did, I hope, why did he have to die to fulfill his mission? What's that? The price had to be paid. Excellent. Which leads us to this next question. What does Lewis say... Um, about the atonement, about our understanding of the atonement. Now, the, now, Lewis has been, on this section right here, there's been some debate about whether or not people agree with Lewis on this or not, so we're going to discuss this for a few minutes. But what does Lewis say about our understanding of the atonement? Okay, yeah. He says that our understanding is going to be limited, right? We just have to accept the fact that it's true, not how is it true. Okay? Um, you guys agree? You can't just look at resurrection without knowing the history. And the prophecy was fulfilled. I mean, is there something like over 325 Mm-hmm. Right. You know, they all couldn't be that wrong. Mm-hmm. Just, you can't just look at the atonement. You've got to look at whole. Okay, so you're seeing it in the sense of the the whole kind of panorama of God's of God's truth. Um, in Lewis's eyes, he's talking about it with respect to just the atonement. Do I need to understand 
how God makes atonement work or do I just need to believe that it works? Right. Okay, so so that would be certainly a picture of, of what atonement looks like, but that doesn't tell us how. Yeah, how does the slaying of an animal and the shedding of its blood suddenly forgive sins, right? I mean, do we know that? I mean, why is it that the shedding of blood is for the remission of sins? I mean, does, do, we, do any of us have that answer? I mean, we know that that is true because the Scriptures teach that, but why is it true that it's the shedding of blood that brings life. Well, are you implying that there's a process for that? I mean, what if it's that's just the way God created it and that's the totality of it right there? Well, that's the point Lewis is making is that there is something within the mind of God in the mystery that the reason that God chose blood as a blood sacrifice for the remission of sins, that's in the mind of God. And so therefore, anybody that spends all of their energies trying to come up with these schemes and these models, he says, he's saying those are secondary. That's his point. Um, so, let's say... Now, let me ask you a kind of a provocative question here, okay? Let's say two people come to your door and they happen to be wearing black pants, white shirts, and a tie, let's say, hypothetically. And... you got a couple of bikes in your front yard laying there all of a sudden. All right? And they come to your door and they want to talk to you about spiritual things and you stop for a second and you say, listen, before you say a word, let me ask you a question. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? They say, yes. Do you believe that He died for your sins? Yes. Do you believe that by faith you, you, that, you, that you're saved? By faith in Christ that you're saved? Yes. Um, do you believe that Jesus is fully God? No. Now, on the basis of that alone, are they saved? Okay. There's only three answers to this. Okay. One is no. How many would say, no way? All right. Hard people here. How many would say, maybe? I mean, would say, yeah. None. Hard church here. Now, why is that? How much do you have to know about the inner workings of salvation in God's nature to be saved? Okay. Okay, so if a person, yeah. Right. Did you? No. Yeah. So this is the, I mean, this is the question. It's an important question is what is the body of content that is required for it to be truly saving faith? 
I mean, is it perfect theology? Is it, what is the minimal content required? An eight-year-old believes that Jesus, someone that's not him, did something that he couldn't do. That he, he was a sinner and needed Jesus to die for him. And he gave his life for him. And this doesn't know anything about, you know, kenosis theory or substitutionary atonement. It doesn't know any of that stuff. And yet, we would say that certainly the Lord has honored that child's faith. Right? What were you going to say? That was the operative word that you used. And it's one reason why I think some people have been a little bit critical with Lewis in this is that the key word that you used, um, like a good Protestant, is the word alone. You know, if you ask a person from the Mormon background or Jehovah's Witness background um, or even a Catholic background and you say, are you saved by faith? They will categorically say, yes, absolutely, I'm saved by faith. But if you ask them the question and just throw one more little word in there, and you say, are you, saved by, are you saved by faith alone? Now that's where suddenly the dividing line comes. And that has been a historical battle in the church, by the way, just to let you know, is that this idea of the Bible, if, even if the Bible teaches faith alone, is that full recognition required for the salvation of men? You know, Many just say, you know what, I'm going to leave that up to the mercy and justice of God. I'm not going to make that judgment. I'm just going to move on. Others say, no, it's the purity of the gospel. We have to fight with it. With Lewis, and the reason I bring this up is because I want you to understand the background of Lewis. Lewis is writing from a perspective of what's called an inclusivist perspective. Lewis was, in some senses, opened to the mercy and the grace of God being extended to people who did not have the fullness of knowledge. Um, But that salvation was still based on Christ alone and no one else but that God would grant them mercy and grace because God recognizes the human condition and the frailties of the human mind and our inability to truly understand. See? Y'all follow me? That's, so that's where Lewis is. He, Lewis opens a, a broad door and, and just trusts and hopes that the mercy of God um, allows these people who don't have the benefits of seeing with great clarity uh, the fullness of the gospel. Some would say, no way. No, you've got to believe Jesus is fully God. If you deny that in any capacity, you cannot be saved because you're rejecting Christ for who He really is. So, it's a good discussion. I mean, it makes for a good discussion. I don't want to beat us down with it tonight too much, but um, just to give you a little flavor or a taste of where Lewis is coming from, he's more open to something like that. I remember my, in seminary, I asked Dr. Burns, um, Lanier Burns, my theology professor once, we were talking about um, cults and other belief systems and I asked him if he felt like there ever, if he thought there'd be any Mormons in heaven. And, uh, and he gave the classic response that he didn't come up with that someone else did, but he said, you know, Walter, there's three things I'll be surprised about in heaven. Wow. Yes. He wants me to say it right now. Huh? Say it right, that's right. <laughs> Say it right. 
<laughs> That's right. Um, and that, um, <laughs> it's kind of a troubling thing right there. He said, the three things I'll be surprised about is, one, um, I'll be surprised at who's there. I'll be surprised at who's not there. And I'll be surprised that I'm there. That's what he said. But the point that he made was, he said, Walter, I absolutely believe that there's going to be people there that we never thought would be there. And it's because, he said, we tend to see this, this box, this schematic of exactly what somebody has to believe. And he said, we have to be very careful with that. And he used a great analogy, actually. He used the analogy of um, the woman with the issue of blood, remember? She'd been hemorrhaging. And what does she do? What does she say to herself? If I can just touch his cloak, I'll be healed. Well, there's nothing about his cloak, was there, that was magical or powerful. It was kind of a suit. If I just touch his cloak, I'll be healed, right? And yet, Jesus turns around and recognizes, even though her faith was a little bit deficient, right, and, and something about the cloak of his, he still honors her faith and heals her because of the measure of faith that she did have. And Dr. Burns was talking about that, that we need to be very careful that we don't force something upon God that maybe God Himself isn't forcing Himself. Now, don't walk away saying, dang, Walter thinks Latter-day Saints are all going... I didn't say that at all. What I'm saying, though, is that when it comes to the atonement, I do agree with Lewis that there's some basic things that, are, that, that make up atonement. And what is it? What are the basic things that he says, the basic facts of the atonement that are necessary? See what he says they are? Page 55? very last paragraph we are told that Christ was killed for us that his death has washed out our sins and that by dying he disabled death itself that is the formula that is Christianity that is what has to be believed see it's pretty minimalist isn't it with what he's doing there he doesn't add anything about the degree of knowledge by which somebody has to have about the natures of, of these things. But he's simply saying there has to be the recognition that the remission of sins comes from him because he's lived a perfect life and I haven't and that therefore because of him I get his righteousness. Now Lewis does of course say that the only way atonement works is how. He goes on and explains it, right? What's the only way atonement works? What has to be atoned? What's that? Okay, the heart. Yeah, but what, what's the nature of, of, of the person that, ha, that does the work of atonement? The, the person has to be God, right? Why does it have to be God according to Lewis? Remember what he says? Okay. Otherwise, we wouldn't have it. Okay. And he said, for a person to want to repent, what do they have to be? Good. But if you're in need of repentance, what are you not? Good. Right? So, in order for someone to truly atone, they have to be what? Perfectly good. But if they're perfectly good, what don't they need? Atonement, right? So, they will then 
give their life for those who do need atonement in order to not simply take our punishment, remember he rejects that, but to do what? Pay our debt. See? And that's the key to the atonement that Lewis says. The key to the atonement is the payment of debt. It's not that simply he was taking our punishment. It's not that God said, oh, look at what this world has done. How shall I punish them? And Jesus comes and says, oh, take me, Father. I'll take their punishment for them. Right? It's not that. It's, uh, uh, you know, it's the analogy that you've heard some people... You guys ever heard the story? It's an old story lots of pastors tell about the father who was going to you know, spank his child and to teach him substitution. Instead of spanking his child, he took the belt and he whipped himself until his leg was blistering up and his son was crying and he was teaching his son, see, I took the punishment for you. What Lewis is saying is that's not atonement. Atonement isn't that God takes the punishment for us. Atonement is that He pays the debt that we owe. Now, there happened to be punishment that came with that, but that the atonement was about a debt that was canceled, not about simply taking a punishment that we deserved. And that's, and that's the point that he's making here. Uh, can you remember, just to cross-reference it with Scripture real quick, can you remember a story that Jesus tells that talks about this idea of paying a debt and that being a picture of atonement? Right. That's right. Um, and what was ironic about it, remember the guy that owed the $25 million right, to the master? What does he say to the master? Please have mercy on me for I will pay everything. Well, was that possible? I mean, is there any way that guy was going to ever work enough to pay his master the entire debt back? Not at all. And so what does the master say? Your debt is forgiven. Right? It's paid. Don't worry about it. And then he goes to the other guy, and the guy owes him like half a day's wage. And the guy says the exact same thing. Have mercy on me for what? I will pay you back everything. Could that guy have paid him back everything? Sure. And the guy then does not extend a forgiveness of debt to him, right? But the point of the story is that we are the first man that we go to God and say, have mercy on me. Not, I can pay back everything. And he cancels the debt. And Lewis says, that's the heart of atonement here. It's the idea of a debt being canceled. Um, and I think that was, yep, that was, the, that was the final question there. So, you see kind of the way, it's like a funnel that Lewis has been arguing. He starts off, remember, with the moral argument from oughtness. And he carries this through. And he says, if there's a moral oughtness, then that means there must be something that transcends that informs us about what we ought to do. And this thing, this being, must be good, right? Because he's giving a perfect standard by which we have to measure up to. And then he says, how do we do to that standard? How are we? We're not doing good. We all fail the standard. Therefore, when you look at life, when you look at history, you see man frantically seeking to achieve, to earn God's merit, earn His favor, to do all these things, and he says man never achieves it. And so then God enters in and does four things on his behalf. Gives him a conscience. He gives him good dreams. In other words, he embeds the story in them. Right? He calls out a nation. And then he calls out a man out of that nation. 
And the unique claim of that man is that he's going to come and he's going to do the very thing that no one in the history of the world could ever do. And he's going to forgive sins. And the only way he can do that, Lewis then builds the argument, is by being God himself and being man in order to fully represent. You know, it's interesting, when Barna also did that survey, he asked evangelical Christians um, if Jesus was 100% God, 100% man, or if he was 50% God, 50% man. And almost 40% of evangelicals said that their understanding was that Jesus was half God, half man. Kind of this Herculean type creature. Isn't that weird? They didn't understand the importance of it. So before we leave tonight, I want to make sure that all of us know the importance. Why did Jesus have to be fully man and not half man? What is the reason he had to be fully man? Okay, man of the price. True. That's it. It's all about representation. Because Jesus could not fully represent us if he was not fully man. Right? So that's exactly right. So why did he have to be fully God? Okay? Well, that might be debatable. He might have been able to live a perfect moral life being, you know, a created being by God. I mean, Adam potentially could have lived a perfect life. So he didn't have to be God to live the perfect life. Why did he have to be God? What's that? That's right. He had to be fully God because he had to now appease the very nature of God because of the violence that the sin had done to God. He had to be God himself to be able to truly appease and atone for the sinfulness of man. Does that make sense? So, yeah. Right. Right, right. Some would argue that God the Father is fully God and will defeat evil, and Jesus himself didn't have to be. The reason that uh, we would argue that Jesus had to be fully God is because Jesus came to defeat sin, see, and death, and not evil as a whole. But we would say that he will, he will defeat Satan and evil and everything because he is fully God. My point is if you ask somebody that doesn't believe Jesus is fully God, they're going to say um, God the Father is going to overcome Satan. And, 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 the, and the evil schemes of the devil. He's going to overcome them. Jesus simply paid the price for sin. But what we would say is, no, Jesus is going to do that entire work, all of that. Well, what we're going to do next week is we're going to finish up Section 5, the practical conclusion. Um, and then we're going to hit the Book 3, which Lewis is getting. And this is a very good section of the book. He's going to talk about the Christian life, kind of the, the spiritual life. He's going to talk about... Um, things that all of us on a daily basis um, wrestle with. So next week when we come back, we're going to go ahead and probably break up into small groups next week and we're going to have some um, interaction on, um, on some of these basic themes that Lewis talks about. Any comments or questions at all so far about the book? Yeah, I know. It, it is kind of, some of the language is kind of um, yeah, like even his analogy to Jesus, you know, being likened to, or remember we talked about the poached egg? Um, that him claiming to be God and he's not would be likening him to a madman or a poached egg. This is, it's just as British people, yeah. They, 
You know, they're all laughing over there. <laughs> you know, we look at that and go, all right, whatever, dude. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, some of his writings, you know, he, of course, was a literature, myth, um, lore scholar. You know, and one of the things he says, particularly in the Gospels, is he says, he says, um, I've studied myth and legend all of my life. And he said, and when I read the Gospels, they are not written as myth or legend. And the reason he said is because myth and legend, they do two things. Number one, they magnify and extrapolate miracles and, and power. You have these bizarre things happening. Where in the Gospels, you'll see Jesus do these miracles and then it just kind of moves on. You don't see a lot of embellishment on some of these miracles. It's just every day, you know, okay, fish were multiplied and given to the people. It's not an embellished sense. Uh, like the Gospel of Peter, for instance, where Jesus' neck stretches from earth through the clouds. You know, something like that. And he says, number one, that's what myth does. It embellishes these things. And secondly, myth isn't attentive to detail. You know, for instance, remember when Peter and John were running to the tomb whenever they heard that the tomb was empty? But there's another thing said about it. What does it say? And John ran on ahead of Peter. Remember that? And Lewis talks about that and he says, those little details of, and John ran on ahead of Peter. And these little things those all have the markings of what? Of truth, of historicity. You know, you, you just see somebody writing this and they remember the details of the historical account. Whereas if it was simply an embellished myth or legend or lore, you don't focus on these little isolated tidbits of details. You know, or whenever they entered into the tomb, what did they see? Remember what they saw? Lewis talks about this. They saw the wrappings, right? But it even says something about it. What does it say about the wrappings? They were folded neatly. And the head wrapping was over on the side. Remember that? It was folded on the side. And he says these things are not, are not folklore and myth. Because that's not how those things are written. This is written as history. So he's got really great insights into kind of the Gospels and Gospel narratives. So...